Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. Over the last month, we have shared with you two of our keynotes at last month's Reagan National Defense Forum. We shared with you the forum's keynote address with Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, as well as the fireside chat with Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we are going to share the forum's final panel, which celebrated the forum's 10th anniversary. The panel was entitled, A Discussion on Peace Through Strength with Former National Security Leaders, and it featured former U.S. National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, former U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. The panel was moderated by Fox News Channel's Bill Helmer. During the conversation, panelists discussed Ukraine, and if the U.S. and other allies should continue to provide weapons, the U.S.'s take on Tehran, how far the U.S. should or shouldn't go in assisting Israel, rising tensions between China and Taiwan, and more. Let's listen. We are so happy to see you with us here. A lot of these topics have been chewed over throughout the day, so we're going to maybe come at this um, from a different angle. Uh, but first, I want to give special recognition to my colleagues, Jennifer Griffin. Uh, great job on your panel today, and Shannon Bream, if she's here. <clears throat> And also our, our president of Fox News, Jay Wallace. Jay is back there in the corner with Scott Wilder. And Jay's really spearheaded our involvement as a network for the past seven years coming out here. And it, it's just, it's awesome to be here. First weekend of December reminds us about a special place, not just in history, but where we are today. And maybe we can try and figure out where we're gonna go tomorrow. And Fred and Roger and David, thanks for having us back here. I saw High Bush at lunch today, so it was good to see him as well. Uh, Fox News has been a part of this for seven years that I mentioned. And we were talking earlier, I, I don't know if we heard North Korea today. And I know a year ago, hypersonic missiles were all the rage. And they still are because of the um, disadvantage we have right now against Moscow and Beijing. But we can do this, we can catch up. Um, I want to frame the following discussion. When you consider that we are coming into an election year and, and ask yourself, where will the issues of the world land within our own country and with our people? And we're familiar with the phrase peace through strength. I see that in two ways. Yes, you want to build your defenses strong enough so that you can outscale your adversaries, but you must also show the desire to use it if necessary. And that was part of the one-two magic that Ronald Reagan showed the world and <clears throat> led us to a whole new generation of peace. So come on up here, gentlemen. Let's get going here and um, start our first topics. Leon Panetta, Stephen Hadley, and Robert O'Brien. Partner, right on. You got it, buddy. Robert, I see you, sir. Welcome. Ready yes, for this? You're ready. Okay, all right. Now, where do you want to sit? You want to sit there? Where do you want to sit, Bob? Well, I did not have the seating chart, so gentlemen, you're going to have to go rock, paper, scissors, <laughs> and, and we will fight it out amongst our own. 
unless you have. Here? You got it. Please, you got it. Wherever the hell you want right. to put us. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot's been chewed over today, and I, I want to come at this from a little bit of a different angle and see where it takes us. By the way, I have no idea what you guys are about to say. Um, some of these are hypotheticals, but I want to get an understanding for maybe how we can predict what the best, smartest move is for America. All right, Ukraine. <clears throat> we don't know if Congress will give the support for the war which President Biden is requesting. Uh, we do know this. Russia is reinforcing its war for military bases on its side of the border. To date, Ukraine has not shown the capacity or the desire to reach those bases. However, what if our European powers, the Germans, the Poles, the Brits, or the United States, provided the weapons to reach those bases in Russia? If you want to win the war, do you consider that to be responsible or reckless? Secretary Panetta. Well, first of all, uh, let me uh, congratulate the Reagan Forum uh, on Defense. Uh, I think uh, you guys have done a great job in these programs, but most importantly, you've kept it bipartisan. And I think if, our, if we're ever to protect our national security, I think bipartisanship is absolutely essential to, uh, to making sure that we protect America for the future. So my congratulations to everybody involved in that. Uh, with regards to the Ukraine, I think it is very important for the United States and our NATO allies to continue to provide whatever assistance is necessary in order to help Ukraine be able to succeed in stopping Putin. This is a war that will determine not just democracy in Ukraine, it will determine democracy in the 21st century. So it is very important that we do that. Uh, I think the the assistance we provide to Ukraine uh, obviously needs to be the kind of assistance, whether it's tanks, whether it's F-16s, whether it's air defense missiles. It has to be the kind of weaponry that will help Ukraine be able to not only defend itself, but to be able to conduct, to continue to conduct this war against Russia. I think with regards to whether we give them the missiles to be able to strike targets in Russia, I think the key we, we've always provided in providing these weapons is to make sure that they will not use those weapons in order to attack Russia. Uh, and I think that it probably makes sense that as we continue to provide advanced weaponry, as we continue to provide other weapons of war, that we make sure that it is up to Ukraine to decide ultimately what is necessary in order to protect themselves, not the United States. Ukraine has to make that decision. Uh, Mr. Hadley, you agree with that or you have a different opinion? I agree with that. I think uh, Leon has let out, laid out the framework correctly. I guess I would add a little bit of nuance uh, under that, which is that I think what we would not want to see is Ukraine being provided with long-range missiles or aircraft and then conducting the kind of attacks in Russia that Russia is, attacking, is conducting in Ukraine in terms of 
de devastation of civilian life and, and, and uh, infrastructure and the like. But I think it's fair to say that if Russia's forces attack Ukraine from positions in Crimea or positions in Russia, they ought to be fair game. So that's happened. They ought to be fair game. It has happened, and the Ukrainians, to the best of their ability, have been willing to respond. And I don't think we should be holding back longer-range missiles to prevent them from doing so. Well, so I think, you that's, I think that's the line. I think the line is, if the Russians attack Ukraine from bases in Russia, uh, then their, uh, Ukraine, it ought to be fair game for Ukraine to go back after them and hit them. Have you thought about this before? Pardon me? Have you thought about this before? When you war game it out and Putin were to make the accusation that the weaponry that's hitting inside of his country is not Ukrainian made, is there a danger there of escalation? Or, or do you already have a conclusion for yourself as to what Putin would do? I don't. I, look, the, we've been restrained for fear of Putin's escalation, I think, too much. And the, the, <clears throat> I think what could be said in defense of the administration is they've gotten through incremental action, Putin, to move that line. But I think, given what the Ukrainians have already done, for US weapons to be used to attack Russian forces that are attacking Ukraine and killing Ukraine, innocent Ukrainians from Russian territory, that's fair game. Oh. And I think that is, I think uh, Putin, I do not believe that that will escalate uh, the conflict. I think it's also terribly important that Ukraine be able to target Russian forces in Crimea, because Crimea is the base from which they basically have to this there. operation. Uh, Robert O'Brien, is it reckless or is it uh, responsible? Uh, I'll tell you one thing. I'm pretty happy we got the Javelin missiles to uh, Ukraine when we did, because without those, those three armored axes of Russian troops invading Ukraine would have succeeded and they would have taken Kyiv. And so we were the first people to give lethal aid. And there were, I'll tell you, there were people in the administration, I'm not going to name, that were concerned about this quote, this idea of provoking Putin. Putin was provoked back in 2014 when he went into Ukraine. And, and the idea that, that somehow that we're going to de-escalate by not giving the Ukrainians the weapons they need to defend themselves is ridiculous. I mean, the, the, the Poles wanted to give the Ukrainians MiGs at the outset of the war. We were the ones who set the red line on them and said, well, we can't do that. That might provoke Putin or that might create escalation. You know, the Russians, the Soviets, gave MiGs to the North Koreans and the North Vietnamese and shot down a lot of American pilots and didn't worry about escalating with us in those wars. So I think the idea that, that somehow by providing the Ukrainians the weapons they need to defend themselves are gonna provoke Putin is, is a weak argument. And uh, we need to give the Ukrainians the weapons they need. But the, it, it goes beyond the weapons. It's, you know, we hear all this self-congratulatory talk about Ukraine, about how well the administration's done with Ukraine. And, and I understand this is bipartisan. I've tried to be bipartisan on Ukraine, and I, I compliment them on, on what they've done. But it's these Ukrainian soldiers who are during the fighting and the dying, and, and we've been parsimonious with the weapon systems we've given them. And, and so I think we've got to be a little less self-congratulatory. And the other thing we need to do is we need to put full sanctions on the Russian Federation Central Bank. We need to cut the Russians off to the extent we can. We may not be able to stop all the oil and gas sales because their oil and gas is fungible. But we haven't kicked the Russians out of SWIFT. 
We haven't sanctioned the Russian Federation Central Bank. They're selling, Putin is, is worth more today than he was when he started the war. The Russian economy is doing just fine, and they're rebuilding the military with the, with the higher oil and gas prices because we, we destroyed our own energy independence, and we let the Russians finish Keystone, the Keystone or the uh, pipeline, and we, we cut our own Keystone pipeline. So let's get serious. If we really want to help the Ukrainians, let's sanction the heck out of the Russians and force Putin to the table, and let's give them the weapons they need to defend themselves and stop patting ourselves on the back about our leadership of the Ukraine while their soldiers are fighting and dying for us. Okay, I, I have... I have six, I have six categories. Uh, that's one of them. Um, we're going to get through all of them. We're going to do it efficiently, okay? Uh, Mr. Hadley, on Iran. Uh, Iranian proxies have been hitting our bases in eastern Syria and Iraq at least 76 times in the past six weeks, including one that was reported just three hours ago uh, in Iraq. Uh, now, we have responded on a few occasions. But in January of 2020, Wood took out Soleimani when he landed at the airport in Baghdad, and the world held his breath, and nothing happened. How far should we be willing now to take on Tehran, and what do you see as responsible or reckless? Well, I thought the Secretary of Defense, by the way, who gave it, I thought, a terrific speech here uh, at lunchtime. Uh, touched on this, and basically I think the standard he set out was we are going to do enough in terms of providing protection to our troops, with, he didn't mention it, but air defense capabilities and the like, and we are going to retaliate against those Iranian forces that threaten our, or attack our folks in an appropriate way in order to deter and protect our people. Now, whether they, that means you have to hit the Iranians in, in, and their supporters in Iraq and Syria 20 times, 25 times, 15 times. This is a judgment he's going to make, but I think the framework is right. I think the real question, and it'll be very interesting to see what the Israeli people decide after they work through this terrible tragedy and this terrible attack that Hamas has done. Uh, do they say that it's time to go back to a two-state solution? Do they say that actually you can't deal with the Palestinians and we ought to annex territory on the West Bank and then put up the kinds of defenses that protect Israeli citizens from Palestinians? Or do they decide a third thing, which is that they can no longer live with a revolutionary Iran, that the threat backed by Iran, posed by Hamas and Hezbollah and even the Houthis is too great, and they've got to go to the source of the problem, which is Iran. That's a big idea. That's a big idea. I don't think they're yet. I don't think the United States government is there yet. But I think that issue is going to come on the table, even if the war does not expand beyond its current scope. Secretary Panetta, I think someone last week uh, used the phrase, I forget the individual who it was, they called Iran the ring of fire. Um, what should we do? What would you do that you would consider to be? I, I, look, I, I think the most important thing is what uh, the Secretary said today, which is that we have to protect American lives under any circumstances. And if they are attacking Americans, uh, as they have been, Hezbollah, uh, the proxy forces for Iran have been going after U.S. Uh, forces uh, in Iraq, in Syria, when that happens, we have to go in and hit those that are responsible for doing it. 
what I would do is not just kind of selectively attack. I would basically determine where those missiles are coming from, and we have that capability to do that. Where are they being fired from? And then attack those positions immediately in order to make sure that they don't do it again. So I, I would be much more aggressive about going after those that attack our US forces, but I would not, you know, look, with regards to Iran, uh, in, many, in many, many cases, this is an issue of whether Iran wants to go to war and destroy its regime. I don't think that's where Iran is right now. I think Iran wants to use proxy forces, they want to use Hezbollah, they want to use Hamas. But that doesn't mean that the United States should not do everything we can do mm -hmm. to protect U.S. forces. Do you think to date that our response has been too soft? I think, I think it's been a little bit too selective. I mean, we hit some ammo dumps, we hit some other targets. I want to go after those who are firing missiles at our troops and make sure they understand that when they fire a missile, they're going to die. I think these scenarios are set in the following way. Um, that leaves you asking the question whether or not the U.S. is on offense. We're not, we? on, we're not on offense, that's clear. And, and the defense is pretty poor as well. I mean, these, we've, had, we've had American troops in Syria and, and Iraq targeted over 80 times. And I'll tell you, the toughest part of the job that I had, and I, I think Leon and, and Stephen would agree with me, is having to go to Dover for the dignified transfer of the remains of our fallen heroes. There's the, it's the worst day of the job, and having to go to Walter Reed and, and see our wounded warriors. And, and to think that we're allowing the Iranians, because look, we can call Khatib Hezbollah and Hezbollah and Hamas proxies, and they are, but they don't do a thing without approval from the RGC and the Quds Force. They're 100% controlled, owned, and operated by them. And so to, to think that we've let the Iranians attack us 80 times, and we've had a couple of pinprick responses that make Clinton's attack on the aspirin factory in, in Sudan look like the invasion of Normandy, and, and think that we're going we're to give the Iranians even a second thought at not attacking our forces. They're doing it with impunity. And so we've got to do that. But, but also, we have to recognize the Hamas attack on Israel was, was basically an Iranian invasion of Israel. That's, that's a fact. Hamas wouldn't have shot a BB gun over the border without the approval of the RGC and the Quds Force. So the, the Iranians authorized it, they, they supported it, they, they celebrated it, and, and we had the most gruesome, I mean, it wasn't even terrorism. I said, I, what, what, to call Hamas and what the, the, their operators did terrorism gives terrorists a bad name. I mean, these are serial killers that came over. They're psychopathic serial killers who came over and tried to exterminate Jews. I mean, this was, this was more than just a, a dispute between Gaza and Israel. This was the, the most severe anti-Semitism and, and genocide that we've seen against the Jewish people since the Second World War. And it was sponsored by Iran and celebrated by Iran. So look, we're not defending, we're not deterring Hamas. That, that didn't work. We, we're not deterring the Iranians from attacking our troops willy-nilly every day, every hour in the, in the Levant. And, and we're not deterring Iran and the Houthis and others from taking our ships and, and from harassing us throughout the region. So look, we're not on offense. We're, we're, we've got a, a weak defense, and it's time to turn that picture around because we're here at Reagan Library talking about peace through strength. Does anyone really believe in their heart? I mean, if you're in the administration, I understand you can't say anything, 
But in your heart, do you believe that we're projecting peace through strength in the Middle East right now? Do you think, we're do you think the Iranian Ayatollahs and Mullahs are looking at us and saying, that's a strong America and we're going to change our behavior because of their conduct, because, because they're showing strength? That's not happening. And until we get back to a peace through strength posture, and, and look, I hope it's the Biden administration that does it. I hope that, that President Biden and Vice President Harris and, and Secretary Austin and, and the whole team, Tony Blinken, Jake, that they, 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 they change their views and adopt a Ronald Reagan approach to the Middle East right now, because that'll, that'll be good for the country. It's not a partisan issue. It's good for America to go back to what Ronald Reagan talked about, what Pete Wilson talked about when he was in the Senate, helping Ronald Reagan with his peace through strength policies. If we go back to that, we'll save American lives, the lives of our warfighters, but also the lives of innocent American citizens. Uh, keep it with you, Robert O'Brien, and on the Middle East. Uh, Israel has designs to take out Hamas. How successful they'll be remains to be seen. Uh, but we can expect, based on its history, that it will have the Mossad going after Hamas leaders for years to come. Um, that'll be either in Gaza, or in Qatar, or Syria, or Lebanon, or wherever, wherever they are living. Um, this is a separate issue from the Palestinian civilians in Gaza or the West Bank. Here's the question. The United States, how far should we be in assisting Israel at a time when many have already predicted that the terror will be here in the U.S. if it's not here already? Well, look, without getting into too many details, we know that there's, there are Hezbollah cells in America. We've, there's likely Iranian operatives in America. The border's been wide open. Uh, and again, it's not a political issue, it's just a fact. Uh, we've had catch and release. We don't know the gotaways, so we have to assume they're terrorists here. We saw what they're able to do on October 7th in Israel, in, southern, in Surat and the, the surrounding areas. And these are absolutely brutal people. Now, the, the great thing is here, we've got the Second Amendment, so people are, our citizens are armed for the most part, and we've got great local law enforcement. And so they're, they're not gonna have as easy a time, I don't think, in America as they would in, in Israel with the attack that they waged. Although, God bless the Israelis who fought back and, and the stories of heroism that are coming out, especially I've got two daughters in the armed forces, to see these, these, the, some of the stories about the IDF women who fought back and, and, and killed these terrorists was, is, is, is heartwarming, but we've got, we've got to be concerned about an attack on the homeland. There's no question about it. Now, we've got to reauthorize 702 collection as part of that. That's something that my fellow panelists would agree with. Um, but we, we've got to do everything we can to, to, to stop attacks. We've got to be prepared for it here. Mm. And, and we're not deterring the, the Iranians. We're not deterring our adversaries right now. And we, if we need to get back to a posture where they understand that if you hit America in the homeland, the, the, res the response is going to be devastating. And so think twice about it. Yeah, how much do you guys think about that, Secretary Panetta or Stephen Adler? Look, you begin with a premise that uh, we're li we live in a dangerous world. There are more flashpoints in the world of 2023 than, than there were since, I think, World War II, the end of World War II. I mean, we're dealing with Russia. Uh, particularly in the Ukraine, uh, and trying to give them what help they need to, to be able to defeat Putin. We're dealing with China and the threat that China represents uh, in Taiwan. We're dealing with North Korea, uh, a nuclear-armed uh, country that threatens uh, the Pacific and threatens the United States. We're dealing with Iran, and we're dealing with terrorism. Terrorism is still very real. Now, look, 9-11 happened. And the United States went to war against terrorists, as we should have. And that's what Israel's doing. They've been attacked by terrorists. They have every right to defend themselves and go after the terrorists. 
We did it. We did it successfully. Uh, we went after their leadership and we got them. Took a while, but we targeted them and we got it. But terrorism has metastasized. It's metastasized into ISIS. It's metastasized into other elements of Al-Qaeda. It's metastasized into, into Hamas. It's metastasized into Hezbollah, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab. There are a lot of elements of terrorism. The United States has to, our responsibility is to defend our country from attacks. And if there are terrorist attacks or those that threaten attacks on the United States, we have every responsibility to go after those terrorists. Mm -hmm. Stephen Hadley. Uh, I think if I understood your question correctly, I think we should do everything we can in terms of intelligence support and all the rest to help Israel go after Hamas leadership, wherever they may be found. Hamas is a terrorist organization as, as defined by the United States. Um, and it would be unworthy of us to withhold that support for fear that we ourselves might be attacked. We've done a lot to protect ourselves against terrorism. We must continue to do so. And it ought to be very clear that if Hamas decides to undertake attacks and Hamas leadership decides to take attacks against the United States on the U.S. homeland, it's going to be the most foolish decision they ever made. Bill, I'll just say, you know, looking at the F-14 out there, I'm thinking of the Achille Laurel and what Ronald Reagan said at the time, you can run, but you can't hide. Hamas has already attacked America. We forget that because we're so concerned about escalation and what might happen in the Middle East. Hamas killed 20 to 30 Americans in the attacks on October 7th, and they're holding about 10 American hostages now. And you hear very little about that. I'd like to hear a little more Ronald Reagan, you can run, but you can't hide, and, be, and not be talking to the, telling the Israelis that they've got a limited amount of time and just a little bit of credit left in the bank to finish the job. We, need, we, we, don't, we haven't told Zelensky in Ukraine they've got a limited amount of time and just a little bit of credit left uh, to, finish, to beat the Russians. We need to be standing, and I agree with, with Lena and, and Stephen, we need to stand with the Israelis shoulder, shoulder to shoulder until they get the job done and, and give them as much time as they need to eliminate these terrorists. And I'll tell you, if you're a Hamas leader down the road, be careful about opening the door for room service because uh, the, the Mossad doesn't forget. More from our fireside chat with Stephen Hadley Robert O'Brien, and Leah Panetta from the 2023 Reagan National Defense Forum after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our fireside chat with Stephen Hadley, Robert O'Brien, and Leon Panetta from the 2023 Reagan National Defense Forum. The Reagan survey we can put up for our folks here about American support for global military presence. It goes to exactly what you three gentlemen are talking about. Uh, the Middle East uh, is Iran and Hamas. Uh, East Asia, arguably, China, Taiwan, uh, Europe, that, that's Ukraine at 17%. 
On China and Taiwan, Secretary Panetta, this is a bit of a guessing game, I believe, and a lot of people talk about this, but I, 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 I don't know how we get to the nut of it, and maybe we can't. Um, I'll frame it this way, peace through strength, and are you willing to use it? Uh, we understood after the invasion of Iraq how difficult it is to fight a war, win a war, control its land, and control its people. Uh, the Russians are finding that out in Ukraine as we speak. China hasn't fought a significant war in decades. Taiwan's an island of 23 million. Would you expect, uh, expect rather, President Xi to make a move on Taiwan, or do you believe that question has been overplayed? I, th I think that we've been through a period where both Putin and our adversaries in the world, including China, uh, have looked at the United States uh, as not being as strong as we should be in dealing with threats. I think the reason Putin went into Ukraine is he went into Crimea and didn't pay a price. He went into Syria, did not pay a price. He went into Libya, did not pay a price. Uh, he conducted a bold cyber attack against the United States of America in terms of our election systems, did not pay a price. And I think ultimately that convinced him <coughs> that, uh, you know, especially after Afghanistan, that he had the opportunity to go into Ukraine and not be challenged. And I think China is the same way. I think Xi basically sensed a weakness on the part of the United States, and as a result of that has gotten much more aggressive about Taiwan about the South China Sea, uh, and about uh, building up their military uh, capability. I do believe that the ability of the United States and our allies, our NATO allies, to take a stand on Ukraine, draw a line, support Ukraine, and provide the weapons necessary for Ukraine to be able to stop the Russian invasion. I think that sent a very important message to Xi with regards to Taiwan. And I think the reason he has probably hesitated to go into Taiwan is because he envisions the same problem happening that Russia ran into well yeah. in Ukraine. This is an easy step. And by, and by the way, let me just say this. I know there are some in the Congress who basically say we ought to, to withdraw or stop providing aid to Ukraine. If we do that, and Putin succeeds as a result of that, imagine the message that that sends to Xi with regards to China. You cannot be tough on China and weak on the Ukraine. You've got to be able to do both. Gentlemen, you want to weigh in on that? Yes, sir. On this, I agree with Leon. You know, we've got to deter China from going after Taiwan. We ought to do that by sh defeating Putin's strategic objectives in his invasion of Ukraine. And we need to do, the, do that by shoring up Taiwan's ability to defend itself and our posture to be able to defend Taiwan, if necessary, uh, militarily by our own presence in the region. So that's the deterrence message. Uh, I think, though, we spend too much time focusing exclusively on the big threat, the sort of cross-straits amphibious invasion. And I think we underestimate the extent to which 
she has enormous number of tools to put extreme pressure on Taiwan. Cyber attacks, interference with trade between Taiwan and the mainland, going after Taiwanese businesses in China, the kind of thing that uh, she did after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, closing off the airspace and the sea space for a period of time to do exercises, thereby disrupting Taiwan's ability to trade, raising questions about the reliability of its supply chains, increasing insurance rates, all the rest. There's a myriad of tools that she has at his disposal to put pressure on Taiwan. And we need to be thinking very deliberately what they are, what are the strategies, how can we strengthen the resilience of Taiwan to be able to deal with them, and what can we do by way of assistance? So I, I worry you want to focus on the big, the big war, of course, but we've also got to spend time figuring out how we can help Taiwan to counter lesser techniques that are available to Xi that would allow him to coerce the Taiwanese. Well, I agree with both Leanne and Stephen. Look, if we lose Ukraine, that's a green light for, for Xi, and, and I think Xi's watching what happens in Ukraine very carefully. And again, he's not just watching the military aspect and the, the resupply efforts, he's watching the sanctions, and he's watched Russia get away basically scot-free with a bunch of half-measure sanctions for almost two years now, and he's, he's calculating that when he thinks if I take Taiwan, or if I attempt to take Taiwan, what, what's the economic impact on, on China? And, and he's not seeing a, a deterrent there. Uh, I agree with Stephen, look, it may not be a Normandy style, or maybe the better uh, analogy is a Sicily style invasion, amphibious invasion of, of Taiwan. Uh, it could be the Republic of China could be cut off with a blockade. I mean, the ROC, Taiwan has about a 12 day supply of fuel. They don't, they don't have a lot of fuel storage and they just closed down their last nuclear plant. So if, if, if Xi wants to really squeeze Taiwan, he does an, a, a naval blockade. And so where's the US Navy there? And where's the political, there's a political leadership here going to escort tankers past Chinese warships into Taipei and, and offload oil for them. I mean, that, that, that would be a major step for a president to, to say he's, he's going to, uh, especially, you know, uh, well, I want to remain bipartisan here, but I think it would be very hard for a president, or some presidents, to say we're going we're to break the blockade and we're going to send U.S. Navy ships. And then if you do that, you're risking war, right? Because a blockade's an act of war, and breaking, breaking the blockade is, is going to be an act of war. Where's our submarine fleet? That's, that's, uh, that's what gives us the huge quantitative and qualitative advantage against the Chinese, against the PLA Navy. Well, uh, today, about half of our submarine fleet, and I see Prime Minister Rudd's out there, and I'm, I'm thrilled about AUXIS. I think it's going to be a great deal. But we can't even get the, the Australians a, a Virginia-class boat anytime soon, and half of our, our LA-class and Virginia-class boats are tied up alongside waiting for maintenance. So if we can't maintain, this goes to Stephen Hadley's point about peace through strength. And I used to tell my staff, you know, I, I grew up on Ronald Reagan. I'm from California. My first political rally was in 1976. My dad taking me to see Ronald Reagan. We were running against Gerald Ford. And so uh, there's some Ford supporters out there, and we love Jerry Ford. But I, I was with Reagan. My dad was with Reagan in 76, maybe even back in 68. And, uh, and I'm chairman of the Nixon Library, so it's, uh, but, uh, Reagan ran against Nixon in 68. We've been Reagan people from the start, and, I, and when we had our staff meetings, and Stephen Hadley gave me great advice on how to run the NSC when I became, and I appreciate that, Stephen. He was one of the first people I went to, and Henry and Connie and Stephen gave me a lot of good advice, and I, I'd sit him down for our senior staff meeting, and I'd say, peace through strength works, it's not just a cliche, and American weakness is provocative. 
and some of our senior directors around here, they'll tell you if you ask them, they got bored of it, and I think they thought it was platitudes, but it was real. And, and if we don't get our submarine fleet maintained and, and out in the field, out, out deployed, if we don't start expediting our hypersonic missile deployments, which you talked about, Bill, and you're absolutely right, it's as important today as it was two years ago. Uh, if we don't start acting, you know, we, we can talk all we want, we can talk about democracy and the rules-based international order, and by the way, I've never known anyone who wants to fight and die for the rules-based international order. They might want to fight and die for America and for the free world, but you know, it, until the free world gets its act together and shows strength, we're not going to deter our adversaries and we're going to end up in a blockade or a, a massive cyber attack or some gray, gray, green zone or gray zone tactics with assassinations of Taiwanese leaders in, in Taipei. And we're going to have a very hard time responding to it. Well, and, uh, um, we, need, we need to get our, get our act together. Yeah. Um, two, more, two more topics, about 10 minutes left. Um, I know this is all very serious stuff. I guarantee you it won't end this way. Um, but I want to look domestically, because a year from now, we're going to have gone through another national election. Um, based on today's projections, either Joe Biden is going to win a second term, or based on today's projections, Donald Trump will return to the Oval Office. Uh, the summer of 2020 was active, shall we say, in American cities. The past two months, I think, have caught many people by surprise, given the reaction and protest to Israel on college campuses and in the streets of major cities. It could be yet another active summer of 2024. Since you were the last person to serve in a White House, Robert O'Brien, what is likely to be the biggest challenge for the next president? Well, look, I used to get asked, you know, what's, and I think you're talking about domestic challenges or the, the possibility of protests. I mean, what we've seen with these protests recently, and I, I just want to say, I think it's despicable what we've seen on college campuses and, and in cities. I went to, the, to celebrate Jim Baker's uh, 30th anniversary of the, of the Baker Institute at the Rice uh, uh, University in, in Houston a couple weeks ago, and Hillary Clinton went. It was a bipartisan thing. Henry was, I think it was maybe one of his last public appearances, joined us by video. And as we walked in, there were students chanting, waving Palestinian flags, chanting, burn Israel, burn. It was the sickest thing I've ever seen, and I, you know, I took a lot of willpower not to go confront him, but it probably wouldn't have been very smart uh, of me to do. But, but that's what we're facing. And, and by the way, for, for these protesters who are here on student visas, who are engaged in this vile anti-Semitism, or if they're here illegally, your, your, your pass to America, in my view, just got pulled, okay? Because you can't come here and advocate the burning and killing of Jews <laughs> and, and, and stay in America. So as far as the protests go, you know, we, we've got to deal with the, the, those sorts of protests. It can't, Look, anti-Semitism can't be the last you know, form of, of acceptable uh, you know, discrimination that takes place in America or threats to kill and, and, and threats of genocide from the river to the sea, which is basically not, not just referring to territory, but referring to killing all the Jews that are in Israel. We, we can't have that here. So that, that can't be acceptable in any party, Republican, Democrat, Independent, that just can't be a thing. And if you're, if you're involved in that and, you sh and you're here as a guest, <laughs> Your guest pass should be pulled. As far as the, the biggest challenge we have, and I'll be brief on this, the, the, the threat to our kids and our grandkids' liberty and way of life is China. And we've got to be focused on that like a laser. The, the daily threat that we've got from terrorism and to, to our troops deployed overseas is from Iran. And those are, you know, Russia obviously is a, is a huge threat as well, but that's Putin trying to restore an imperial Russia. 
the, the Chinese want to dominate the world and change our so way long. of life, and uh, and the, the Iranians want to kill us every every opportunity they, they get. So those are the, the big challenges. Okay. The Secretary Panetta, what would you what would you list? Look, the most top. important responsibility for the next president of the United States is to unify this country. That's the most important responsibility. We can't. We've, we've talked about Ukraine, we've talked about Taiwan, we've talked about Israel uh, and other issues. And the problem right now as we speak is that the chances of passing a supplemental to provide aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, uh, aid to Taiwan, all of the countries we've talked about that are important in terms of national security, that supplemental is having problems. It's having problems on the Senate side. It's having real problems on the House side. Because why? Because in Congress right now, there's an inability of Republicans and Democrats to work together on national security issues. And that's critical to our security. If a president wants to deal with, with protests, if a president wants to deal with issues in the country, he has got to be able to have a Congress that is able to work together in order to protect our country. That means we've got to unify this country. We've got red states, we've got blue states, we've got divisions, uh, we've got deep polarization in the United States of America. The time has come for a president to speak to both sides and say it is time that we focus not on tearing our country apart, but on unifying our country to deal with these issues. That, look, unfortunately, your president hasn't unified the country, he split the country. Biden has not, unfortunately, unified this country. It's still split. If the next president wants to save our democracy, he better damn well unify this country. <laughs> The, the only thing I'd say in response to so that, John, I, is that President Biden's my president as well. I've had two presidents recently, and they're both my presidents. So, yeah, and I think that's you, you know the guy I was talking about. No, look, <laughs> President Trump was my president, and President Biden's my president, and I, and I think that's true for all of us here. Yeah, I served a different president, and when I would, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and when I would venture to offer a sort of domestic political advice, Karl Rove would say, Hadley. Stick to foreign policy, that's something you at least know something about. <laughs> but I would say this, I agree with Leon, but I think it's harder than that. We've spent a wonderful day here, thanks to all the sponsors of this wonderful forum, talking about foreign policy challenges. I actually think we can manage all those challenges as daunting as they are. And we've talked about the kinds of policies that we need, peace through strikes and all the rest to do that. I think we have to focus on our platform here at home. I think that's the problem. If we're gonna unify the country, there's some things we need to do for the American people. We've gotta show that our political system can work. I would submit that we've known for decades what the problem is with entitlements and the border and immigration and fiscal stability and all the rest. We just haven't been able to come up with sustainable bipartisan policies to address these issues. We've got to make sure, we've got to start doing that. 
because Americans are beginning to wonder whether our democratic system works. And if we're going to unify the country, we're going to have to unify around some principles, and we're going to have to show that our political process can solve problems. We have a lot of Americans who feel victimized by globalization, threatened by immigration, and betrayed by elites and by their politicians. That's got to be addressed, and we've got to do that by having a political system that produces sustainable solutions to national problems that have grievances of Americans. We've got to have an economic system that provides growth, but inclusive growth doesn't leave people behind. If we do that, you can begin to pull the country back together, restore Americans' faith in our institutions. And that does two things. One, it allows you to engage the American people to say to them, all right, we're addressing our problems at home. We've got to address these problems overseas because they threaten the peace and security here at home. But it also gives us the kind of effective platform we need if we're going to implement policies overseas to deal with the challenges we that face. That sets us up perfectly for our last category. Um, when I come out here and listen to the conversations, sometimes I leave it concerned. <laughs> Sometimes I leave assured. Um, I, I don't know what to feel just yet um, or what to think. But let's take the sunny side of the street, as Ronald Wilson Reagan would do. Um, what makes you still believe in America and its destiny? Secretary Panetta began. Look, I. It, the reason I, you know, I, I always remain hopeful about this country is because, look, the real strength of this country isn't in Washington. The real strength is in the American people, uh, in their resilience, in their common sense, uh, in their belief in basic values. That's really where the strength is. And I've seen that strength uh, in the eyes of our men and women in uniform. I, I've seen young men and women who are prepared to put their life on the line in order to fight and die for this country. If, if, if the elected leaders of this country just had a little bit of that courage to make the tough decisions about governing, we'd be a better country. We'd be a better country. So the real strength of our country lies in the American people. And I trust in the American people. And I think that ultimately they will make a decision that is important for their family, important for their child's education, important for their job, and important for their ability to speak freely in this country. Those are the fundamental values. We need to return to the rule of law. We need to believe in the Constitution. All of those things are what gives America that fundamental strength that gives me hope for the future. All right, Stephen Hadley, what makes you still believe in? America and its destiny. It's a little bit of an elaboration of what Leon just said. This country was founded on a better set of principles of democracy, freedom, human rights, rule of law. And it, it was founded on the assumption and the belief that a society based on those principles is better able to provide for the prosperity and security of people than a system based on any other set of principles. I still believe that. I think Ronald Reagan believed that. I think that's one of the reasons why the American people are so drawn to him. So yes, we should, as we've talked about today, we should develop our strategies for dealing with China, for dealing with Russia, 
to dealing with the Middle East and all the rest. But I think underlying that, we should be confident that our principles are the right ones and they will win out. And that the authoritarian state capitalism, which is being reflected in what Russia is doing, what China is doing, what Iran is doing, in the end of the day, that is not the future. And we should be confident in our values, in our people, work like the devil to have the policies we need to deal with these, deal with these challenges, but we should have some underlying confidence in our system and in our peoples and in the principles under which our country is based. Mr. O'Brien. I agree with both Leon and, and Stephen. And you know, Bill, you're nice enough to have me on the show. It's early morning on the West Coast, so it's nice, it's nice to get you later in the afternoon. But oftentimes, I'll, I'll go on TV, whether it's Fox or CNN or one of the other networks. And my wife will always tell me, you know, gosh, that was a Debbie Downer show. You know, no, no good news there. And, uh, and I'm glad you asked that last question, because at the end of the day, I still believe, like what Ronald Reagan said, that we're the last best hope of mankind on Earth and womankind on Earth. We've got freedom. We've got free men and free women. We've got free markets. We've got ingenuity. We've got innovation. There's no one here, as bad as our polarization is, and we need to be concerned about it, no one's getting in the wheel well in an aircraft at LAX and trying to get out of America. People are flooding here because they want a piece of what we've got. And so I'll end it the way Ronald Reagan talked about ending the Cold War. They said, how does the Cold War end? And Ronald Reagan said, we win, they lose. And I, I think that, that's how I feel about China, I feel that way about Russia, and I feel that way about Iran and North Korea. We win, the malign actors, the authoritarians, the dictators, the tyrants, the terrorists lose. It's gonna be some tough sledding between now and then, and we need the courage of the, the men and women of our armed forces, but, but beyond that, of, of everyone who supports them, their families, to make sure that happens. But at the end of the day, we're gonna win, the bad guys are gonna lose, and, and we've got a glorious future ahead of us on this. I still think we're the shining city on the hill, notwithstanding our flaws. And we'll leave it there, but before we take a step forward, America, <laughs> before we go forward, Panetta and O'Brien have to make up. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks. Thank Secretary you. Panetta, <laughs> Stephen Hadley, thank you. Thank you. Robert, thank you. You bet. You can find videos from all of our panels, keynote addresses, and fireside chats from our recent defense forum on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Reagan Foundation. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast, featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.